Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. Amazing insights there from a really diverse panel. Now we're talking about investing in sustainability, inclusivity, and of course, diversity. Ali Madhavi from Blockchain Founders Fund. We'll be speaking with Andrew Tan from Draper Dragon, Matthew Friedel from Milwaukee Venture Partners, Jesse Draper from Hagolan Ventures, Neha Mehta from Femtech Partners, and Kendra Ragaz from Accrue Capital. Really excited for the conversation. Enjoy. All right, well, welcome to our panel at LA Blockchain Summit. Our topic, as mentioned for this session, is investing in sustainability, inclusivity, and diversity. Now, there are a lot of critical and unanswered questions that I'm sure our audience here has for our panel, and we're going to try to explore and provide answers to those questions. It's great to have so many friends and audience members tuned in from all around the world. I'll be your moderator for this session. My name is Ali Madavji. I am the managing partner at Blockchain Founders Fund, which invests in and venture builds top tier startups and consults organizations such as the United Nations. I serve on the board of two public companies in the blockchain space. One is CryptoStar, which is a Toronto stock exchange venture company, and the other is Mechanical Technologies, a NASDAQ listed company. And I serve as a senior blockchain fellow at INSEAD. But more importantly, we have a phenomenal panel here with us today. First off, we have Andrew Tang, who is the Managing Director at Draper Gorn Home, Matthew Friedel, co-founder at Milwaukee Venture Partners, a female-led angel network, Jesse Draper, the founding partner at Halogen Ventures, Neha Mehta, CEO and founder at Femtech Partners, and Kendra Ragatz partner at a crew capital but let's jump into it let's start with the elephant in the room many people think of bitcoin and oftentimes they're categorizing mining as wasteful bad for the environment and not sustainable it's not too widely known to the public and i'm sure the majority of our audience would like to know uh, can blockchain really be used for good and what about bitcoin so andrew let's start off with you what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think it, it's a sort of a very interesting um, uh, superficial look at blockchain and the power of mining. If you look at the number of blockchain projects compared to the number of banks in the world, you know, it's an order of magnitude. And if you look at the number of mining rigs, these uh, mining computers versus the number of mainframes that financial institutions use in the world, another order of magnitude. So really we're talking about, um, it's a very efficient way to conduct financial um, uh, services uh, using much fewer number of computers and CPUs. And in fact, if you look at uh, um, Bitcoin and some of these earlier technologies, uh, since then we have had a lot of proof of stake uh, blockchains now being brought online and doesn't even require that much mining. So I'm actually thinking even at the proof of work, it's an improvement from existing uh, financial services infrastructure. And when you take it to proof of stake, that is yet another two to three orders of magnitude. So it's actually a, a misunderstood um, observation. Th thank you, Andy, for that. Uh, Kendra, what, what are some of those misconceptions around blockchain itself and its applications for, for doing good in the world? 
You know, I think um, importantly, the blockchain has the ability to do quite a bit of good in the world. Um, that is very important for just our broader society. Um, number one, it provides a lot more transparent transparency um, in all sorts of industries. Um, and that's good for everyone. Um, it also takes out a lot of costly middlemen, making things, you know, far more accessible to people. And then I would say, you know, at our firm, we do a lot of fintech, um, traditional fintech investing as well. And one of the things that this does is really um, provides more financial inclusion. So if you look at the numbers of, let's say, Black or Latinx investors in crypto, it's far greater than other traditional asset classes in that it is more accessible. Um, and it's also, you know, there's just far more attractive opportunities for many people who feel that traditional investing opportunities have either excluded or even exploited them. So I think there's um, a lot of opportunity and a lot of really positive elements of blockchain. Fantastic. And, and, and Matthew, you know, as a seasoned executive, you know, what are some things that you're looking at from, you know, a Milwaukee, uh, you know, venture partners perspective? Um, on where blockchain can help solve global challenges? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, one of the other hats that I wear is I, I teach at a university. And what I tell my students is, is that I think the, the really exciting opportunities coming down the pipe are in on blockchain, what I call 3.0. Um, anything that is heavily regulated, where there's a, you know, a third party intermediary that can be you know, eliminated or uh, moved to the side is a candidate. So on the government front, uh, digital identities, healthcare, you know, anything that requires um, some level of bureaucracy, I think is a candidate for, you know, these applications that are going to be coming down the down the pipe. And what's interesting is that I think people have a misconception, one about cryptocurrency, but also about what blockchain it, uh, is in its nature. And if you think about it, try to describe the Internet to somebody in the early 90s. Right. It's hard to do. But we got these platforms that came down the the um, the channel, and then now they're a part of our daily life. I mean, crypto is a part of our daily lives, and soon, you know, blockchain application 3.0, which alleviates some of that bureaucracy, are, are going to be in the mainstream and, and just make our lives better. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and Jesse, do corporates or governments, you know, see the sort of potential with blockchain that we're talking about here? Uh, you know, what are some of the major hesitations they still have on the technology that you're seeing from, say, your portfolio? You know, there was actually a really great article in the New York Times a couple of days ago saying how at first the government and the banks were really repelling blockchain and Bitcoin and, um, you know, all sorts of crypto. And now they're starting to embrace it. I, I think um, especially with the launch of ETFs and then, um, you know, all of these other, uh, you know, I'm very excited about flow right now and all of these other uh, types of crypto. Um, something I would like to say, though, is um, as uh, a female and I invest at Halogen Ventures, we invest in women. We have 70 portfolio companies. There has to be a female in the founding team. We don't discriminate. We have three male CEOs, I'd like to say. Um, but um you know, something I'd like to say is recently, I almost wanted to just sell everything. I wanted to sell all of my Bitcoin and my crypto. And uh, it was because I had retweeted something that um, someone had been tweeting online that said, hey, let's try and get um, Bitcoin to 69420. 
And I retweeted it thinking, yeah, I want it to go higher too. Like we're all excited about it. We can kind of like, you know, make this market go the way we want when we're big, passionate um, Bitcoin crypto holders. And, um, and that is disgusting. What I didn't realize was 69,420 was a whole bunch of men um, hoping that it would get to 69,000 because it's a sexual position and 420 because obviously of, you know, pot, uh, the pot sort of national marijuana day. And I think that that is a problem. I'd encourage more women to get into crypto. It's a real opportunity. And I think that the bro culture in crypto really needs to change. Um, and so that's something that I'm frustrated with today. I understand we attach ourselves to these different numbers, but as a female in business and technology who's excited about crypto, all of you men holding this crypto, please don't tie it to sexual positions. That's disgusting. Um, and uh, but I think there's so many opportunities. You know, to um, Kendra's point, it's it's the democratization of wealth as well. You know, as a VC. Um, I have to fundraise from these fund funds and endowments that um, are managed by about 20 advisors. There's like 20 advisors who uh, control the majority of the billions and trillions of dollars of wealth in the world. So that means 20 organizations making those decisions for venture capital. What I'm really excited about is how this will completely diversify um, wealth in general. Different people will have access to different types of capital and be able to invest in different opportunities that they were never able to do that before. And less um, of these organizations that control the majority of the wealth will be in control. I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, b believe sort of that, you know, the distribution of wealth is going to create a lot more opportunity. I think we're already starting to see that with, with crypto. Um, I do want to dive deeper in, in a moment into some of the things that you mentioned, including, you know, female led companies. Um, and, and we're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, I think this is a, a really important topic. Um, you know, we're, we're actually LPs in, in Draper Gorn home, but also another fund called uh, loyal VC. And we, we've got 39% uh, female founders and, and growing. Um, and so, it is definitely a focus that that we have on some of the things that we do, um, and I think it's starting to grow, you know, throughout the industry. You know, I think from this first piece, you know, we heard a little bit about, you know, some of the misconceptions around Bitcoin and sustainability. You know, where blockchain can start being used, you know, more responsibly uh, to actually solve global challenges. But I do want to dive deeper um, into this inclusivity and diversity uh, piece. So. In the traditional world, there's a, a lot of talk about a lack of diversity in, you know, in the investment world, uh, you know, including um, underrepresented founders in different categories such as gender, race, religion, sexual preferences. Um, Kendra, I want to I want to start with you. How does a crew capital uh, approach approach uh, inclusivity and diversity in your investment thesis? Great question. Um, so first of all, we're a very diverse team. So 90% of our investing team is um, a woman or person of color. So um, it's sort of just core to who we are. Um, and as a result, we also have different networks, which we would argue has enabled us to generate above average returns. Um, we think of that as being really positive. By the way, we also are 
multi-generational, which that's a separate subject, but we also believe is really powerful in terms of our investing. Um, so, you know, as a result of these different networks, we certainly have a, um, a much uh, higher percentage of diverse founders in our portfolio than average. Um, the other thing that we do is we really bring in our networks in terms of both in advisory and in board roles. And also as people seek to diversify and fill out their executive teams. Um, and as we all know, I think now it's widely accepted that diversity drives better outcomes. So, you know, we've really found a lot of reception from our founding team, some of whom are not diverse, but want to add more diverse members, and they're really grateful to partner with us. And then more recently, we raised our first growth stage fund. We're, we've primarily been early stage investors. And because we were continuously asked for more diverse representation, we've um, had a, a new sort of focus, both back to Jesse's point about democratizing some asset classes, we invited diverse executives to invest in our growth stage fund um, alongside our institutions. And what that's done is also created an incredible pool of talent and perspective for our portfolio companies. So I think your original question was actually, how do we look at it from our thesis um, driven approach? Um, you know, we look at our investments as we would with anything. I just think that we ask different questions than the average VC firm. And so we therefore have more diversity in our portfolio. Well, absolutely. I think you mentioned a few really key points that I want to emphasize here, right? So, you know, I think there's the, the thesis perspective, but there's all of these building blocks and all of this infrastructure that you're putting around around it, right? So that, that advisory board that you mentioned here, we talked a little bit about it before the call as well. You know, having, you know, diverse experts or diverse advisors that can come in and mentor your founders, potentially serve on their boards, I think also start to, to create more of that ecosystem of diversity of thought and make it you know, more, more natural in, in organizations. Um, Andrew, in Draper Dragon, what are some of the challenges and barriers that you know, we need to solve uh, you know, for further inclusivity and diversity in the investment world? And what are some of the things that, that Draper Dragon's doing? Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, I reflect upon even just my engineering school days, you look around and clearly it's not a true representation of what the optimal, you know, class looks like. And, and that, you know, that sort of mix, when you take that to the business world, to the tech world, it has changed very little. So even though, you know, we, um, from the Draper ecosystem perspective, we always have this goal to try to um, to really diversify our you know either our investment team or portfolio company we do realize uh, there's a, a more deep-rooted challenge um, so we got to go back to the education and that's why we have Draper University within the Draper ecosystem we really try to go back earlier in the, the value chain and see if we can uh, talk to more young people and encourage them could go into entrepreneurship or venture capital um, or tech. Um, and I'm happy to report we have already, um, the Draper University have been around since 2012, 3000 graduates, and we have about 30% um, women going through the program. I know it's still not up to par, but I tell you that number is much higher than my engineering class in undergrad and graduate school. 
No, I, I mean, I think I think for the venture world, I mean, I, I've seen data, you know, two percent of of traditional, you know, funds are are, are female led, right, investments, and so, you know, and, and that number has been growing, but but much too slowly, and 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 we need to be doing better. I think the the things that you know Draper University is doing, you know, uh, Jesse Draper mentioned with halogen, I think are are phenomenal uh, for the industry. Uh, Matthew at Milwaukee Venture Partners, you guys are very early stage, right? My understanding is you're coming in at sort of the angel yeah, seed or seed round. Yeah. Or seed round. Um, you know, can, can you tell us about what you're looking for, you know, from a diversity perspective? How do you guys value this? And, and what are some of the challenges that you see, you know, maybe downstream as you look at how do your companies then go get funded, you know, after that? Yeah, so we... Um... We look at not only the the deal and the opportunity, but you know the first criteria that we look at is is the the team itself, the founders and their vision. Um, and you know there's an analogous relation uh, statement saying sometimes we bet on the jockey. And I think Kendra alluded to it. There's been tons of research that have said the more diverse you have in your team, the more successful um, you are. So we look for you know not only uh, diversity in terms of backgrounds and. Um, perspectives and things like that. But we also look for, you know, passion and genuineness um, in being able to deliver that because being a, you know, lifetime entrepreneur myself, it's th those lowest points can be challenging. But if you have that passion, if you have that integrity, if you have a customer focus, you know, these are the characteristics that we hold very strong in the, in the type of deals that we, we are looking at. Um, and then just one more point, um, you know, so again, we're, we're female led, we're an angel network. So we're all individual accredited investors. We're not a fund. So I would love to say that there's a magic bullet that we can have to add more diversity. But what we've done is had a very open book, um, you know, open group policy. So you can come in, you can come to our, our dinner meters where we're evaluating and, and then see how kind of the sausage is being made and kind of breaking down some of the um, barriers that, that are associated with, you know, these type of investments. Absolutely. No, that, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And may, maybe you can drive a little bit deeper into, you know, what you mean by, by female led as part of that angel network. Um, you know, I understand that there's probably several different layers to look at, right? There's sort of the invest, investor group being sort of diverse. There's, you know, what Kendra was mentioning as well with some of that advisor and infrastructure that can go and support the companies. There's the portfolio companies themselves that could be diverse. And then there's probably even their customers uh, that could be diverse if you're if you're targeting sort of different markets, right? And so, you know, what areas are, of that are you looking at, uh, Matthew? Yes, yeah, spe specifically to uh, Milwaukee Venture Partners, the way that we structured is we're we're a nonprofit volunteer based um, organization. So, um, our leader uh, Karen Plunkett is the managing director, and then I sit; she's uh, on the board as well with that. Um, so, um, you know, that kind of drives. Um, the viewpoint that we look at in terms of our, you know, portfolio uh, company. So it stems from a culture that we're creating inside of our organization to be inclusive, wanting to not only add additional accredited investors um, to our group, um, but also um, what is the, what do the founders look like? What are their vision? You know, what are their, what is their mentality? What are their morals? You know, that all drives us. So, if we see a, a deal that's really great, but it doesn't align with our values, we will probably pass on that. No, it makes sense. And Jesse, go, go ahead. I think like I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, your thoughts on, you know, aspects where, you know, mm -hmm. halogens getting involved. But even is there things that you're also doing to facilitate or improve diversity and inclusivity within the portfolio companies themselves? 
Oh, definitely. Um, you know, when I started this, I was like 10 years ago, I was running um, a, a technology talk show and I was only interviewing men in tech. And I made this initiative to interview 50% women in tech because I just didn't see, I just was like, how am I only interviewing men here? We need to, you know, increase the, um, the amount of women in technology. And in order to do that, we need media exposure on these women. And I got inundated. I call it like the Batwoman signal. It was like I had sent out this crazy signal for women. And what we've learned now over the years by investing in these incredible women is we're seeing thousands and thousands of deals and we've made over 50%, uh, over 50% of our founders are um, minorities of some sort. And we um, have, we think of diversity of age, race, and gender in every investment we make, because we know this, those things will create stronger businesses overall. The data is there and you want people with different backgrounds and different cultures and different, um, you know, just different experiences, bringing those things to the table. And we do have one of our male CEOs who I actually sit on the board of this company. Um, when I invested, I said, hey, you know, I don't see a lot of women here. I think we need more women here. And he has taken that to heart. And they now have over 50% female employees. Um, they're thinking about women at the board level all the way down. Um, something I'd also say for the venture funds um, and any kind of fund out there now is um, the ILPA, which is sort of like the standard fund of funds, gigantic hundred page deal memo that you have to fill out if you're, you know, taking investment from someone. They have this huge, huge section now on ESG. Um, and it's really, really important that you're looking at ESG from um, the, at the board level at the founder level, at the employee level as well, um, because they're starting to they're make starting sure that make sure things go through the entire organization um, versus just, you know, putting women and uh, diversity on boards. They want to make sure that you are, you know, walking the walk uh, all the way through. And so, um, but I think that's a really good thing. You know, I think our, the companies will be stronger overall. I agree. Like, I, I think that, you know, that, you know, helps them be better, faster, stronger. And I want to, I want to open it up a little bit and dive a little bit deeper into this topic, right? Because at first we were talking about, you know, a little bit more on the investment thesis, investment process, like that sort of aspect where you're looking at diversity, sustainability, and inclusivity. But what about post investment support? So what sorts of things, and Jesse started to touch on this, but what are some of the sorts of things that, you know, Kendra, Andy, Matthew, you guys are doing with your portfolio companies after you've invested you know, on some of these topics. I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, I mean, Go I think, um, and Jesse, by the way, I love what you're doing um, and super grateful for everything you are doing. Um, you know, I think there's one, another element of diversity that I think is becoming more and more important to our founders. And we were actually seeing our founders naturally do this, which is diversity on your cap table. So um, to go sort of more broadly, I think there are varying figures, but of the, $71.3 trillion of assets managed in the US, I think the number is something like 98.3% is managed by a, a fund owned by white men. So, and I think the ownership percentage is something like 25%. So that number could certainly be sliced and diced in all other ways. I think no one would argue that that number um, is good for us for the long term. Um, so we were seeing some of our founders go out and create SPVs. So we were seeing our female founders say, 
we love working with UA crew. You guys are diverse. You get our story. You understand the pain point from the female consumer or from a services perspective. You've helped us with our team. We want to make sure all this value that we're creating is, um, you know, is really benefiting a broad group of shareholders. We really want to make sure that we're being very inclusive in wealth ownership um, opportunities. So, you know, that's one thing that we've done uh, with our new diversified capital fund is just really expanding wealth um, generating opportunities. And our, our teams love that. Um, in terms of very specifically with diversity, we've done a number of things. We will do um, workshops on how to promote um, and support risk-taking. That's actually something that women tend to have a harder time to do, doing in cultures, as well as um, underrepresented minorities. Um, also just, you know, promoting more inclusivity. Um, and, you know, candidly also just, we work really hard in terms of trying to make executive connections and then also customer connections um, for our companies. So there's a whole, you know, list of things we do. And I know nowadays in venture, everyone works really hard to be a good partner to their companies. But I think having a diverse team, we can bring a really unique sort of um, value to our portfolio companies, or we'd like to hope we do. We're seeing a lot of that, um, Kendra, as well. We just did an SPV with a company that's much later stage than we typically do. And uh, the CEO was sort of like, yeah, we're going to go public. It's going to be great. We're going to make a lot of people a lot of money, and we want to make sure we get in. Um, we have this allocation for specifically women and POC because we want to make yep. them a lot of money. And I'm seeing that more and more, and it's such a it's such a cool thing that that's how they're thinking about it. Yeah. It is great. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's really important. I guess Andy, Matthew, go ahead. I was going to share um, just a, um, one of the things we do with our post investment support. Um, so the Draper ecosystem, we have over a thousand portfolio companies. So one of the biggest value that we provide in some ways is to kind of not bother the founder, but yet let the portfolio companies get to know each other. And mm -hmm. most uh, most recently, I observed a very interesting observation. Um, so we invest in Ledger. You know, it's the the leading hardware wallet company, and they're based in France. So um, on their board, they're actually chief diversity diversity officer, and they're they're governed by the French law. You got to have a certain amount of diversity. So my first reaction as an American was, "Oh my God, more regulation! I don't like it." But what I learned about from that was. Uh, the regulation itself may be an overhead, but the concept and the the the, uh, the philosophical driver of the regulation is actually really good. So what we did was we took that uh, philosophical approach of recruiting more women and have diversity and have a person on the board who's in charge of diversity. Right? It's no different from having an audit, you know, chair and you know uh, finance chair. Um, in this case, we have a person who's supposed to look at diversity. What it does, especially for blockchain companies, is that um, I think to Jesse's point earlier, there is a little bit of bro culture, right? So we got this awesome technology, but very unusable user interface. I mean, who downloads MetaMask to buy NFT? So, so it's not it's not the it's not the mainstream you know consumer uh, product yet. 
So, uh, so that is what we try to sort of bring to our American, you know, early stage startups. You don't need a diversity officer. You don't need a board, but, but that is that should be a a, a one of the checkbox, and that we we would grade the CEO on. And in, initially, it may seem like burdensome, but you'll realize the wisdom when you hire the right people and they help you improve your user interface and you get a lot more users, you become a unicorn, everybody's happy. <laughs> oh, 100%. Uh, Matthew, do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, po post-investment support? Yeah, just as a, a blanket statement, I, I think most companies, you know, they're, they're coming to you for funds, right? But um, I would argue that the more value we bring is through our networks. And we are seeing, you know, some pretty early companies that are struggling on a couple different fronts. Um, so we try and use our networks to help them, whether it's on the sales side, whether it's on the logistics side, whether it's on, you know, whatever it is. So our network is always available to those post um, investment entrepreneurs. And I would argue that's equally as important as the funding, although, you know, that's necessary. But we really want to be make those entrepreneurs successful, uh, given all the diverse background that we have in our experiences. Absolutely. Actually, in, in our philosophy at, at Blockchain Founders Fund, we actually believe that the capital is at an early stage is actually a smaller part of the, the puzzle. And so we actually work with our companies every single week on strategy, product market fit, scaling revenue, scaling users, and then making sure we've got a plan to ensure that the companies are, are well capitalized. And um, and that's been you know working incredibly well. And we've been first checks into you know, a number of major companies in the blockchain space. Um, yeah, I want to I want to move, uh, you know, from here, I think this has been a, a fascinating discussion, you know, on on sort of that investment thesis and, and how that includes, you know, diversity of, uh, you know, diversity, inclusivity and sustainability, but even the post investment support uh, piece. But let's look five or 10 years into the future. Uh, Jesse, we're going to we're going to start with you. You're going to have to share with us your crystal ball on the future. How will venture capital look, uh, you know, from this perspective? Are we going to have, you know, equality or what is it going to look like? Oh, gosh. And I'm like, well, we're at the blockchain summit, so I better type that in, right? Um, I think it's changing. I mean, to Kendra's point, we're seeing a lot more SPVs. Our investors are a lot more excited about SPVs than investing in the next funds. Um, everyone wants to be an investor. So I think something needs to change and will change. And I actually think blockchain will be an enormous part of that. Um, you know, blockchain is going to change the future of finance forever. And I look forward to being able to collect LPs investments, um, you know, in Bitcoin and in differentiated um, digital currencies. I think it'll be really interesting. So um, I can't wait. Fantastic. And um, Andrew, uh, what, what are some key factors we need to solve to better ensure equality inclusivity uh, over the next, say, five to 10 years? Um, so I, I, I think uh, in, in a way things are happening. Right? I think, uh, you know, part of the challenge for diversity and lack of diversity and inclusivity in the past is just lack of awareness. But with information so readily available stats, they're just kind of in our face. So we understand. And I feel like the the Gen Z um, crowd is going to lead the charge and say, this is not right. We're going to make it right. Um, and I think it's going to it's going to just happen um, naturally. Uh, I started uh, investing 20 years ago and our playbook was let's go to AT&T Bell Labs and 
invest in a couple of PhDs and then give them a little bit of money. And then they create this prototype. We sell to Cisco for, you know, a billion dollars. And then it sort of graduated to now let's just follow Stanford GSB grads, let's fund them and then have them create a, a company and sell to, you know, Google for a billion dollars. But now if you look at blockchain projects, I mean, forget Bell Labs or, you know, GSB degrees, um, you know, some of these um, capable engineers came from all walks of life, anywhere from the world. They may not, for all we know, they may not even have college graduate degrees, or sometimes they may not have a real photo. It's an avatar people are investing in, and they are creating awesome products changing the world. So I think th this is uh, happening, and I think our job is to really just embrace it. And when you see um, uh, these situations that almost looks a little bit different and makes you uncomfortable, you want to ask the question, hey, maybe, you know, you want to give this opportunity a chance, even though it looks very different from what you're used to, because the world is changing. For those, those of us who are in position to, uh, to pull trigger and to invest in something, uh, you want to be more open-minded and say, this looks different from the, the other movies I've seen, but I think the movie, the narrative is changing. Yeah, I want to. I want to actually dive deeper into that because I think that's you know quite quite interesting. I mean, in terms of you know Kendra, Jesse, Matthew, you know geography of investment, you know as a way of diversity. I mean, in the blockchain space, it's you know pretty much expanded. You know, globally, teams. Some of them are are launching products globally on day one or having teams globally on day one. How do you how do you think about that? How does that reflect in, in your portfolio from a geography perspective and, and how do you foresee that changing? Hasn't COVID helped uh, improve the way that we work together? I mean, so we are now in an environment where we can work virtually. Somebody can be in Singapore, somebody can be in the coast or somebody can be in Europe and allows us to coordinate much more effectively. I mean, not to say that there's many positives out of the pandemic, but our ability to be able to collaborate and work in a virtual environment, um, I think it's been improved. And that is helping, you know, some of these companies be, you know, not just centralized in one specific area. Absolutely. Uh, Kendra, Jesse, thoughts? I would agree with that. I want to just go back to one maybe point on from, um, from Andy's comments, which I thought were great as well. Um, so first of all, agreed things are global. We have founders from all over the world. Um, and we tended to be historically a little more US based. So the pandemic, I definitely think has made us, we've seen for better and for worse, mostly for better, that we really are a global economy in many ways. Um, I'm really bullish over the next 10 years. I'm sorry to sort of backtrack for one minute on um, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, because what I see changing in blockchain is a lot of the maybe let's say the form factor and the consumerization and the comfort. And so now that you can buy a fractional Bitcoin, now that you're going to be able to shop with uh, crypto, I think you're going to see far more women and underrepresented minorities moving to this platform because you don't have to open up an account from a traditional institution that might be kind of scary. Um, and so I'm really, um, I'm really bullish and I'm, and I'm very positive in terms of my outlook that this will bring more gender and racial parity. And I think there's even a little more racial parity now into the sort of the 
just the crypto asset class. And then also I'd say the, you know, the pandemic has gotten people very, all sorts of people very comfortable from an age, gender, race perspective of being online, natively online. And so more comfortable with a lot of those sign up and security issues. So I'm really looking forward to this being a powerful tool to have more inclusivity. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Jesse, do you, do you have some thoughts on your geography investment? Are you guys global and sort of your mandate? You know, how do you foresee that changing as well over time? We do have some founders from all over um, the world, but we are primarily domestic um, in the United States. Uh, I think it has helped us. We've made quite a few investments um, virtually. I still, you know, now that people are opening, things are opening back up, uh, I think we still do want to meet some people. We've seen some potential fraud issues and things like there's a lot more um concerns around, you know, how do you do your background and extra diligence when you're only living in an online world. So I do think I want to maintain the human connection somehow. We sort of say, Mm -hmm. okay, new founder, like we just made this rule, like new founder, someone needs to go meet them. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's important. Like we're we're humans. It's not healthy to be on your your computer all day long. Um, And I think you want to maintain some form of interaction human to human. Um, but we've gotten a lot more done. We're more efficient, less travel costs. Our companies feel the same. It's been pretty incredible that way. Um, but I do think that we need to remember we live in a human world. No, I, I, absolutely. Um, you know, from, from our side at Blockchain Founders, I mean, we've got companies across six continents. We do a lot of these digitally, as I'm sure, you know, many, many of us do now. Um, and, and we see that actually you know, continue to create opportunities as well in, in emerging markets, right? And, uh, and it's been fascinating, uh, you know, to see that sort of develop and, and grow. Um, I am curious, though, how you're thinking and, and if your mandate sort of allow, but you've got this whole movement of DAOs that, you know, have started, but, you know, you could see it picking up a lot more over, say, the next five to 10 years. You've got topics like privacy, uh, which, you know, are, are very big. And in the blockchain space, it's been interesting because from our side, we've seen a lot of investments that you don't even know who the team is. It's, it's actually because they're, they're so big on privacy, you get some avatars and you don't do video calls with them. You do audio calls with them. And so See, I, I would not do those deals. In? I wouldn't do those deals. I would be afraid to do those deals. You need to go meet the avatar. <laughs> not normal so, so we're gonna need are we gonna have like a metaverse you can go into and you can meet the avatar and spend some time with them yes but i would suggest final step like meet them in person and make sure it's not like a dog running this company <laughs> and i meant like an actual dog like i mean like you just don't know maybe there's some great engineer who's a pet somewhere even in virtual world, relationships still matter. We we like to meet the founders. We like to talk with them. We like to understand their background. I'm I'm with you, Jesse. Not to say that we couldn't get to a spot where we can do virtual deals, but relationships matter. And we do do virtual deals. I mean, you think of like even years and years ago with Second Life, people were buying real estate in Second Life. You know, I think that already exists. People are comfortable doing that. But I think for us, when we do a deal, yeah, just make sure you can go as far as diligence and, you know, committing, you know, as long as then the final step is just meeting. <laughs> meeting what about Kendra, Andy, are these things that you guys could be doing like 
more more DAO investments or privacy investments where where you might not even have a typical equity structure. You might not know the team. Like, what what does that look like for you? I'll start. We 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 also like to look at uh, meet the team. We in COVID we haven't always met them in person, but we've typically had some sort of second relationship where. Um, you know, we can do some very thorough reference checks with folks that we know who would have worked with them. So, um, you know, trust is still key. Um, and we obviously have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors um, that we know, you know, who we're investing in. Um, so at least at Acre, we're not we're not quite there yet in what you're talking about. I don't know about you, Andy. Yeah, so, so we, uh, we're a seed fund, institutional seed fund. Um, and 20 years ago, when our founder, Tim Draper, realized, hey, in order to do seed business, you got to really have that, you know, that in-person connection, local knowledge. So he created Draper Venture Network. So we are actually part of a, you know, a, an alliance of 23 venture capitalists around the world. So for our local seed fund, it gets done locally by the local GP. So the core fund, the U.S. fund, uh, Draper Associates, we would then participate in Series A along with them. So that's kind of how we get around. And I think it's a has worked out great. Um, and I do want to address the, the second life um, Jesse mentioned. I thought it was fascinating. Um, it, it's to a, uh, it's the new world where I think we're seeing this second generation of, um, uh, of the sec, uh, second life of metaverse. When people are getting real jobs in the, in the metaverse and earning income, I feel like this time is a little bit different. You know, I'm not proposing we all just put on our headsets and call it a day and be part of the matrix. But I do think uh, this this next generation of, of 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 gamers are spending more time in the metaverse uh, because now they actually have a job. I can it's harder for the parents to say, "Hey, you know, get off the game and go do something productive." But when in fact the job is in the metaverse, and then if your job is in the metaverse you may start consuming in the metaverse. And that new economy, it's uh, kind of fascinating. There's no H1B involved. You, you work cross border. So suddenly this is a whole new world. No, it, and I, I want to touch oh, on this, right? So we're, we're actually the first first checks into Splinterlands, which is one of the two largest games in the blockchain industry alongside Axie. And, you know, we're hearing incredible stories, life-changing stories every day in, in villages and communities. And there was actually a, nasdaq and, and motley fool article that came out a couple of days ago that said someone put in ten dollars into the game to start and it's worth seventeen thousand dollars now in, in in such a short period and it's it's incredible to see you know the entire economy that's being built out of this i mean we're they're doing 1.3 million daily rentals of items i mean it's 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 quite incredible to start seeing how this is transforming you know communities making it more effective to be you know investing your time into something like this, into a game where there's shared economics versus, you know, being a taxi driver, working at a grocery store, these sorts of things. Yeah, I am, during, during COVID, there were a lot of um, workers couldn't get work visa to go work in the foreign country. So then they just log on to the blockchain and, you know, play the earn model. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm a firm believer in intelligence and talent is is evenly distributed across all people, but access is not. So I do think blockchain being a decentralized technology is one of the best tools to democratize access, 
and really, you know, opened up, uh, you know, um, even the playing field for everybody. Absolutely. That, Go ahead. Oh, you know, I'm just saying, Andy, that's one of the most interesting things I've heard and to think about. I know that you guys have had trouble for years trying to get people visas so that they could work in the United States. Right. And I mean, this really changes, it changes the world in so many more ways than I even thought about. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think, I think this also covers that sort of last layer that we talked about, which is actually the portfolio companies, customers, and, you know, creating opportunity, diversity, access, as Andy put it, you know, is, has been uh, incredible. Um, just given given the time, uh, we've got to wrap up. I'm sure we could go a lot more uh, and, and pick your brains more, but we're going to have to do that another time. This has been a very insightful discussion from our incredible panel. I can personally say I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience will agree as well. I'm encouraged by you know the transformation in the venture capital industry, you know, leading to more diversity, as we heard here, inclusivity and sustainability. And it is here to stay and only going to accelerate. And so there's many other incredible presentations and panels from experts all around the world remaining today and tomorrow at the LA Blockchain Summit. What better time to learn from these experts from the comfort of your own home? Be sure to check them out as I know I will. Thank you again to our incredible panelists for making the time here to share your insights.